Oh, thank you so much. Let's pray together. From Philippians. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Lord God, we thank you for how this beautiful song that we just heard and meditated upon is an illustration of this passage in Philippians that we all know so well, an application for us, and even a means for us to worship you this morning. For you do remind us, Lord God, through our songs, through the scriptures, through our prayers, through our time together, that you are all that we need. And the only way we can find peace is if you carry us. And Jesus, we do believe you are enough. The best thing that we could ever do is to find our rest in you. We do ask that you would be the longing of our hearts and that satisfaction, the only joy of our lives. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is so true. It's so needed by us. And we ask, Lord God, if you would be pleased to show us the reality of this verse today, this week, even in our lives, so that we can bless you all the more and proclaim that you are our God and you are the one who carries us. We ask this morning now that you would bless your scriptures to our souls and that we would come to a greater faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And we are actually in the middle of Jesus' sermon on the end times. That is where the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about how this world order is going to be wrapped up. Now, when we first think about that topic as Christians, often things that come to mind are like the, the very return of Christ or maybe the rapture. And uh, usually the things that come to mind are the topics that have a high degree of speculation surrounding them. And it's helpful to realize that when we talk about eschatology, it's more than just speculation, whether it's a fun type of a speculation or a really serious studied type. But when we use this word eschatology, sometimes we use this a lot in Christian circles, it just simply means the study of last things. And there are really two major divisions when we talk about the end times, and one is a personal eschatology or personal issues realities that every single human being is going to face eventually. Death, heaven or hell, judgment, resurrection glory, salvation, rewards, and understanding that there's a need for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and his resurrection for our justification so that our sin is dealt with and we are saved eternally. Those are personal questions. There are also then the second division is what was called general eschatology or general study of the end times. And that's about answering questions on a much larger scale. Questions about his return or the rapture or the antichrist or tribulation or the millennial kingdom or judgment or resurrection or new heaven and new earth and the topics seem to be endless. And we're all interested in these general questions it seems, which is good. It's good to explore this in our thinking and understanding of scripture. But even when we're studying the general questions, everything we study has to bear intensely on the personal application. And in fact, we're going to see that approach by Jesus himself in his sermon. 
now that we're halfway through it. And if in fact, if you look carefully, you will see that every time in the New Testament, when the end is in view, or in the Old Testament, when the end is in view, or even in the book of Revelation, the application is intensely personal. So when it comes to the general questions of eschatology, we do have many definitive answers to questions, but we also realize that we only have answers to some of the things that are most likely correct, and there are probably a number of things that are just above the speculative range. So we need to make sure that we know where everything fits in which category so that we can apply it to our own souls to produce the proper amount of eagerness and faithfulness and hopefulness in our lives. You know, there were similar tensions with the disciples at the time of Jesus regarding these two categories. The general questions about when are things going to be wrapped up, how is it going to take place, and questions about their own personal destiny and rewards and glory and the kingdom. As we read the Gospel of Luke and his recording of Jesus' sermon today, we'll see that he desires that the church learn the same lessons that the disciples learned from Jesus. You know, in our statement of faith as a free church, we talk about how when we look at the end of the world and Jesus' return, that it's supposed to have a vital bearing on our personal life and service. Well, that's the main concern we'll see in Jesus' sermon as well. So please turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 25. Let me read it to you this morning, and we can learn together how we should be watching for Jesus. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what's coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, this discussion between Jesus and his disciples goes way back to verse 5 in chapter 21. As you can tell, we began in the middle of a discussion. And their question about the temple and the kingdom of God, and Jesus is just now getting to their question about his return and he had mentioned to them earlier, the main concern is in the midst of a world in distress, it's an opportunity for you to witness. If you look in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Well, today in our passage, we're taught to watch for His glorious return by being prayerful and faithful until that final day. So how do we go about waiting for Jesus? Well, yes, in verses 25 to 28, 
we should be watching for his return itself. But then we learn in verses 29 to 33 that we should even be watching for certain signs. But finally, in verses 34 to 38, we realize that we are supposed to be watching ourselves most of all. And so first, yes, we should be watching for the return itself, just like the apostles and the church has been ever since. And there are certain reliable signs of the real end that we read here in verses 25 and 26. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth such distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with the foreboding of what's coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So these signs, you'll probably notice, they sound somewhat similar to what Jesus said earlier if you just glance over at verses 8 through 11. Remember, though, though, as Jesus talked about those signs, he said that they were not reliable signs about the timing of his actual arrival. Those, those signs were the rise of false prophets, of false Christs, of political upheavals, of natural catastrophes. But when we get to this section of his sermon, we should notice that there's a difference now because these signs that he just mentioned now have a universal application to the whole world, and their intensity is much, much greater. And so these would be unmistakable of the immediately impending presence of Jesus Christ. And we should understand that at that time, there's not going to be any need for or room for people to commentate and help us interpret the signs, because everyone will be reeling in fear or waiting for the redemption. So this time of these signs is going to involve a complete shaking of the heavens all around the earth, it says. Now this event has been spoken about multiple times in the prophets in the Old Testament, through the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Amos, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Joel, and then even in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. So for example, a few passages you might want to jot down, Isaiah 13, starting in verse 9, the prophet says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Joel, chapter 2, verse 10. The earth quakes before him, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see, Jesus is talking about something that has been predicted over and over and over by the prophets. People at that time when he returns are going to be in great distress, distress, deep anguish, as the world and the universe is falling apart. People are going to be fainting from fear, we're told, perplexed about what's happening at a complete loss. I mean, we get a picture of what this is going to be and the helplessness that we observe in people with lesser catastrophes right now. I mean, there's nothing. We can't even imagine how awful that will be. But you think about how people shake with fear at tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes, etc. How helpless people feel afterward and how it elicits compassion from us. Now include in your thoughts about those experiences every single person on the earth. And consider no ending to the terror and all happening at the same time for a, for a, a severe amount of time. The Son of Man's coming is near, Jesus says, and they will see the Son of Man, verse 27, coming in the clouds with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So Jesus here is referring to himself as that great son of man figure from Daniel the prophet in chapter 7. And he quotes verse 13 from that chapter and referencing the whole section. Go back and read it sometime on your own, but it'll be fulfilled at Jesus' return. And in Daniel 7, starting in verse 13, It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. And then jumping down to the end in verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. You see, when Jesus returns, he, as this eschatological, end times, son of man, is going to take his throne upon the earth, judge the nations, reign with his people, and consummated glory with his kingdom forevermore. He is the king. And he is the divine majesty who is coming on the clouds, the Son of God, to establish his kingdom. So when the things of verses 25 and 26 begin, the reality of verse 27 is about to take place, which is redemption for the people of God. Wow, that's quite a contrast, just in a few verses, for Christians at the time, because the whole world's going to be reeling in terror and we, as believers in Jesus, are going to be lifting up our heads in hope. They will be in utter dismay and despair, but we'll be in utter joy and hope. Our redemption, our deliverance from this dissolution of the elements and the fullness of our salvation is going to be ours. So yes, watch for the return itself of Jesus. 
I mean, can you imagine the signs of this event as described in these verses? Of course, we can't. But try to ponder them and try to be overwhelmed by them. That's one of the applications of this text from our Lord Jesus himself, is to meditate on that. His words, they will endure, as we'll find. And the prophets, as they speak. And notice that Jesus didn't give the disciples the answer to the question they asked. He didn't answer the question the way they wanted it answered. When they asked that question in verse 7, oh, when are these things going to be and what's going to be the sign when they take place and looking at the temple and all the, all, the, all the glory there and the details, he gives them a very different answer and he gives us one that is different than we often expect. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians verse 4, chapter 4, verse 16 says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we're to watch for Jesus' return, and even its certain signs which he takes us to next in verses 29 to 33. He says, learn the lesson from the fruit trees. Then he told them a parable. Look, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already here. So also when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So the fig tree is the best teacher but all the trees are mentioned to teach the same lesson, essentially, in that, of course, tree, these fruit trees are bare in winter, and they blossom in spring, and summer promises fruit. But the fig trees are particularly interesting because they blossom relatively late, later than one expected, and so it's a really good analogy because Jesus' return is later than expected by his disciples, by us, maybe. And likewise, the signs in Verses 25 to 26 tell us that the kingdom of God is very near, but again, we see the difference with those uncertain signs back in verses 8 through 11. Well, at this point in this sermon, as Matthew and Mark record it in their gospel accounts, they go on to record some more of Jesus' words regarding this built-in design by God of two elements. One is delay and one is imminence. In other words, we have to wait. We know there are certain things that need to take place, but yet we're supposed to be watching that he could come at any time. And then we're supposed to live with this tension. We know this tension in our own lives. That's what Matthew and Mark do as they continue to record what Jesus spoke on that day, but Luke goes straight to the reliability of what Jesus just said, and then our required response. It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until it's all taken place, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now this phrase, this generation, most likely refers to the generation that Jesus is speaking to, at least most naturally, but that's not an absolutely necessary interpretation, and it's been taken many other ways. Some think it speaks to the final generation that would be there. Both are valid possibilities. But concerning verse 32, I mean, there are many suggested interpretations, and we're not going to review them all here, but just put forth these two that are the most common. So one very common understanding is that Jesus is referring to the final generation. 
And so the generation that sees the things taking place in verses 25 and 26 is also going to see the end in verses 27 to 28. And if that's the correct way to take it, one thing to ponder is how awful such a shaking is going to be, that it could last for a whole generation. That's a long time. Another way to look at this is to understand that Jesus is really summarizing, jumping back to the beginning part of his sermon, beginning in verse 5. This is a very common understanding, especially as you try to integrate it with Matthew's account. And Jesus is simply saying that when they, the people he's speaking to at the time, when they see everything he's just been talking about, as he's speaking in a summary fashion, those uncertain signs that he mentioned, they'll see that, the fall of Jerusalem, that they should really be ready because his return could be at any time. But not that it's at any specific time that he's certainly going to tell them. So in regard to the timing of the return of Jesus, it could have began any time after that generation and the end has not been revealed. And we'll only know it when it takes place, a mystery. So you can select your option, but realize that Jesus' words on the end and his return should be considered more durable than creation itself. Even if it's hard to understand and interpret and sometimes confusing, this is a very strong statement. Because when we look at the heavens, when we look at the earth, when we look at creation, they seem quite stable. And yet, literally, the heavens and the earth are not going to last in their present form. Creation's transient in that sense. Just as these signs that he mentioned talked about. But his words will endure. And so we should be watching for the certain signs of Jesus' return, but not confuse them with the uncertain signs. You see, distress and persecution of Christians and the proclamation of the gospel, that's going to continue ever since the time of the apostles all throughout the very return of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. And there's really no way to predict when he's going to come back. We're to watch for his glorious return and the certain signs when they come. But there's something even more important that we're supposed to be watching for. And that is to be watching ourselves. To be watching our lives with spiritual vigilance. That's how Jesus applies everything that he has just talked about. He says, but watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So here's the main point of the sermon, the Olivet Discourse. It's ethical implications. Remember the divisions we talked about at the beginning of personal eschatology? Your personal response to the fact that the world's going to end and Jesus is coming back in general? That's what Jesus is doing here as well, now applying it directly to us. You see, that day is going to come, and it's going to come suddenly, and it shouldn't surprise the believer. However, Jesus mentions here that just as the unbelievers are going to be surprised in terror when the trap shuts on them, so a believer who's living a very worldly life at the time is going to be trapped and greatly ashamed 
The Apostle John talks about this in his letter in chapter 2, verse 28. Same thing. So we must not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And perhaps dissipation and drunkenness are used here to describe giving ourselves over to the cares of our life. Or maybe they're literal or maybe both. Dissipation means letting your life fall apart. You know, when people live in despair and have no hope, sometimes the best way to live is to let your life fall apart and to give yourself over to the cares of the world. You know, as we think about drunkenness and what it does to our mind and our faculties and how it just destroys them and makes us unaware, Jesus is also saying here that too much care for this life too much care about what goes on here and worldliness, that affects the soul. And our spiritual sensitivities get dulled as well. And eventually, you see, just like a person who gets drunk on alcohol can be too drunk to care. We can be so absorbed in the cares of life that we don't care about spirituality anymore. And so when Jesus returns, these types of Christians are going to be surprised, startled, because they're not going to have time to just sort of shake off that stupor of worldliness. But they'll find themselves embarrassed, as the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, 28. So the reality is, in the meantime, we're going to be facing many temptations while we wait for Jesus' return. Worldliness has many forms. We're going to hear people say things to us and about us that... You know, this return of Jesus thing, that's just a myth. I mean, you're wasting your time believing in Jesus. People will say things like, you know, he's not going to come back, or at least it's going to be a really long time. I mean, look how long it's been. So why even think about it? Or, you know, it doesn't really matter too much because when he comes, everything's changing. So you may, I mean, you may as well just do what you want till then. And many, many other things. So verse 36 is exhorting us to stay awake, to stay alert, stay sober, to be thinking correctly. And the Apostle Paul writes very similarly in his letter to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. You'll see that these words of his, as I read them to you in a moment, very much mirror what Jesus says here. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything to written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, you know, in verse 36, Jesus tells us to be praying for two things while we're waiting. We're to be praying for strength to escape temptation. 
And while we're waiting, temptation of the cares of this world, you know, basic needs, our future hopes, the toys we might acquire, managing our life so we can control everything, our health, our job. All these things are good things with a spiritual viewpoint and moderation and wisdom and with purpose. But that you can also get ourselves so wrapped up on them that we could even say we're drunk on the cares of the world. So we need to be praying for the strength to escape these temptations because they overtake so many. The second thing we're to be praying for is perseverance. To be able to stand before the Son of Man, the judge, and be approved. So finally, then, we get to the summary of Jesus' ministry this final week. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So chapter 22, that will begin next week, begins the final week of Jesus on earth. And this is where we conclude his teaching ministry that last week. And while he's lodging nearby, what would happen is that in the daytime, Jesus would go into the city and teach, and teach in the temple precincts. And each evening, he would leave the city and go sleep at Mount Olivet or lodge with some friends nearby. But during these few days, many people would get up early in the morning and flock to hear Jesus. But then, it's astounding, because in just a matter of a few days, many people would decide to put an end to Jesus' teaching by putting an end to Jesus himself on the cross. But then we would see, as we continue to read on, as the Gospel of Luke concludes, and then his second book, the book of Acts, begins, the mission of Jesus Christ reemerges, beginning in Jerusalem after his resurrection. And in fact, this mission it's resurrected, if you will, even from the temple precincts itself, as we read in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. So, from this sermon of Jesus Christ, we should learn that we should watch ourselves above all, more than being a sign watcher. Watch for Jesus' glorious return by being prayerful and faithful until that final day. You know, this passage of Scripture provides for us the true focus of history. It gives us a glimpse and a hope for the great end for which God created the world. That's for his own glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ and those who've been redeemed by him. That's why he created the world. We need this focus upon the final stage of the kingdom of God because we often forget about it. Now, of course, we don't really forget. We know that it's in the Bible. We know the passages. We might even have other books on our bookshelf that talk about the time when Jesus returns. But practically speaking, we often do forget. We can easily end up living our lives focused so much on peace and happiness in this world that we forget that there's a new one coming. Even enjoying the good Christian life in a free society and helping others to find such a thing and live prosperous lives can consume us that we forget that there's a better world and a better kingdom coming. So we're warned by Jesus himself in this passage to not let ourselves get caught up in the cares of this life. That would be the wrong focus. Instead, we're to be watching for his return by being in prayer and being faithful in what he's called us to do until that final day. 
We might ask a question like, well, how can a Christian's degree of watchfulness for Jesus' return be measured or determined? So I hope that when we look at passages like this, like we did this morning, that we realize that, you know, it doesn't depend on one's particular view of how the end times unfold. In other words, again, their general eschatology doesn't make one necessarily more watchful or more prayerful than someone else or more productive. Those are the true measures that Jesus talks about. And furthermore, we've learned from Luke through this presentation of Jesus' sermon on the end times beginning in verse 5 through 38 that our questions and our assumptions and our desires about the finer details are often not on target and aren't going to be answered more specifically than they've already been answered in the Scriptures. And we need to be satisfied with the answer that God has already given us. That is to be satisfied with the Scriptures. That is to be satisfied with God Himself. One pastor gave very practical advice and put it this way and said, how cheerfully should we, his followers, rest in ignorance that cannot be removed, trusting in all things to our Heavenly Father's wisdom and goodness, striving to obey his clearly revealed will, and leaning on his goodness for support. How cheerfully we should rest in an ignorance that cannot be removed. We aren't going to know all the answers until they take place. You see, the New Testament reality is, as we read through it, that both of these elements are present. The delay, that Jesus has been in heaven reigning for us, but he hasn't returned yet. It seems like it's a long delay. But the scriptures teach that there are things that need to take place. Most importantly is the mission, that the gospel needs to be proclaimed to all the peoples in the world. And that there's this element of imminence, the sense that, well, Jesus can return at any time. And he will determine what determines fulfillment. And then the ethical injunction upon us as God's people is to be ready for this. And our God has determined it's best for his own glory and our good to provide precisely the amount and the type of scriptural revelation that he has given us to put this unresolved tension in our souls and our minds on purpose. Because when we live in the midst of that tension, it causes us to hope more for his return. And it should produce a humility in us. Every generation of Christians has lived and is going to continue to live with an intense longing and a real expectancy for Christ's return and ready to welcome him as king. So in chapter 21 in this sermon... Jesus, through Luke, has told his church, first of all, that they should take every opportunity to engage a world in distress to witness to the gospel of Christ. And secondly, in our passage today, to watch for his return. And as we're watching, to be primarily watching for ourselves by prayerfulness and by faithfulness until that final day. So may we give attention to those matters and prove that we are faithful watchers for Jesus. It's fitting today that we're celebrating now the Lord's Supper 
Because part of the instructions surrounding the Lord's Supper are these words from the Apostle Paul, and you proclaim his death until he comes. That's one of the purposes that our Lord Jesus left us with this celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's because it causes us to hope for and to wait for the kingdom of God. So with those who are going to serve with me, if you'd please come forward this morning.